Was anybody at the fall retreat this weekend? Oh, I was there. I was there. You were there? That's great. I was sore for like three days after between like the dancing, the football, the eggnog, all of it. So I got home and like the one thing I did was just lay down and created a game for Isla and Jack, my toddlers. And it was like, Isla, get me a pillow. Who can massage daddy the best? That was the game that I made up on Sunday. <laughs> it was massage train. It was awesome. No, guys, I'm happy. If, if you were able to make it to our fall retreat, that's awesome. I hope you had a blast. If you weren't, that's okay. We will have more of things like that upcoming, so stay tuned. Spring conference coming in February. Keep your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so tonight we are continuing on in our Isaiah series, continuing to try to capture a more clear vision of who God is. So a couple weeks ago, I quoted R.C. Sproul, who's a pastor and theologian, who said this, how we understand the person and character of God affects every aspect of our life. How we understand the person and character of God affects everything about our life. If that's true, then we want to have the clearest picture, the, the most accurate understanding of who God is we possibly can, because the more accurate understanding, the more accurately we see who God is, the more we're going to be able to align our life with his purpose for us, the more we're going to be able to glorify him through the way we live. So we want to have an accurate view of God. It impacts every aspect of our life. So, so far we've seen week one that God is a holy God, that he's transcendent and separate, that he's holy, 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 that there's just this majesty, this power, this glory about who God is. Week two, we saw that he isn't just this big, massive God who's distant, but he's a God who became near. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's not just a transcendent God, but he's also an imminent God, a God who is near and accessible. And that's seen most clearly in the incarnation when he became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus. Week three, we saw this holy God who is with us, that he has a heart for the nations, that his name would be known by all peoples on earth, by every ethnicity on earth, that he wants his glory to go throughout the world and that all people would have access to salvation in Christ. And then this weekend, we saw at the fall retreat that God is a God of love, that he has this unimaginable, overwhelming, incredible love for us that is ultimately seen in Christ, that the God of the universe loved you so much that he desired a relationship with you, that he would send his only begotten son to die on your behalf, that that's the fullest expression of his love for you. And that when you see God's love in that way, that it transforms every aspect of your life. This week, we are going to look at this picture that we see of God, that this holy God, this near God, this loving Father, is a God who is near to those who are suffering, who's near to those who are hurting. That he's a God that offers hope and healing to people who are walking through really dark times. Guys, the fall retreat was really fun, but in the midst of that, we all got an email, if you're a UNI student, on Saturday night that Isaac had passed away, that it was a tragic death. And for some of you coming into tonight, like Andrew said, you're feeling the heaviness of that, that this has been an incredibly difficult week for you. Some of you knew him personally. Some of you were really good friends with him. Some of you have walked with people this week 
that were friends with him and knew him, whether that was on the marching uh, team or, or whatever other activities he was a part of. Some of you, for whatever reason, haven't been as impacted by the death of Isaac, and, and honestly, that's okay. There's a variety of responses when an event like this that happens, and we respond in a variety of ways for a variety of reasons, but all of us, the, these events in our lives bring up this just yearning for wholeness, this yearning for healing, this, this question of God, why do you allow suffering? Why do you allow things that are inexplicable like Isaac's death to happen in this life? So I want us to go to Isaiah 25 tonight. We're going to see this God who is a God who is near to those who are suffering, a God who offers hope to us during tragic times. And regardless of where you're at tonight, like I said, each one of us needs a clear vision of a God who walks with us and promises to bring healing when we suffer. For those of you who are suffering now, or for those of you who have suffering in the past, those of all of us who will suffer in the future, each of us needs a clear vision of a God who walks with us and brings healing when we suffer. And each of us then needs an answer to this question. What is God's solution to suffering? Each one of us tonight needs an answer to that question. What is God's solution to suffering? So I'm going to answer that question with a personal story, and then we're going to look at five promises that we see in Isaiah tonight, promises of hope for people who are suffering. So what is God's solution to suffering? Let me answer that with a personal story. So uh, my son, Jack, like I said, he's my one and a half year old. There he is. He is a beast. We love him so much. We're super thankful for him. Uh, Jack's birth was actually probably the, the hardest moment of my life so far. And he's super healthy now, so it's, it's nowhere near the level of suffering that some of you or others have experienced in this life. But for the experience that Natalie and I went through when Jack was born, it brought this answer of what God's solution is to suffering to, to just, we, we felt the answer to that in such a profound way. So when Jack was born, Natalie had a C-section. We went down to Des Moines. Uh, it was kind of a normal C-section. He is born. We're excited. They, like the nurses show us Jack and then they take him over to this station, like this transition statement station. So they start doing all the transitional things, helping him breathe, helping him, you know, checking his pulse, making sure everything went smoothly. And Natalie and I are happy. We're excited. But after about 10, 20 minutes, you're supposed to be getting your baby back at that point, And we're not. And they're starting to become a more concerned look on the nurses' faces. And then they begin bringing specialists into the room. And there's just this crowd hovering over Jack. And they keep looking over at us and saying like, hey, like he's doing okay. We're just, we're, we're trying to figure out why he's not transitioning as well. And eventually it gets to the point where Natalie's surgery for the C-section is done. So they take her out and they say, dad, do you want to stay in here? I'm like, yeah, I'll stay. I'll stay with my son. I'm sitting there and he's having a hard time keeping his oxygen levels up. He can't keep oxygen in his blood and so they take him to the nursery. They're monitoring him. They do a scan of his lungs. And there's just all of this like gray, like gunk in his lungs that they can't figure out. So they're like, hey, we need to take him to the NICU for a couple hours, the intensive care unit for babies. We're going to take him there for a couple hours. They'll help him transition. And then you guys will get him and it's going to be fine. So I'm walking with Jack. The, the trans, tr transportation nurse is walking Jack up this hallway. I'm walking with him. And as we're walking, 
his oxygen levels just plummet. Like you're supposed to be at 100%. He hits 40% and they're just plummeting. And so she's scrambling to get oxygen on his face and she starts sprinting through this hallway with my infant. We run into this NICU room and there's just doctors in there. There's at least like seven doctors, nurses, and they all immediately begin scrambling with my son. And I'm just standing there, just overwhelmed by what I'm experiencing on what should be one of the happiest days of my life. And so I'm just so overwhelmed with emotion as I'm standing in this NICU room. I just, I leave and the nurse is like, whoa, whoa, dad, we need, we need you. And like, I'm signing papers and it's just, I'm overwhelmed. And finally, after like a half hour, I make it down to where Natalie's at in her, in her room. And she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, sweetie, Jack is in the NICU and we have no idea what's happening. He's just not doing good. And over the course of the next couple days, it was every time Jack would, we'd go to visit Jack, he just was worse. And it was just spiraling down and down and down. He couldn't keep his oxygen levels up. And for three or four days, the nurses and doctors had no idea what was going on. And so I got to hold him on the first day of his life for like maybe 10 minutes. And as I'm holding him, the nurses, he begins to plummet while he's in my arms. And the nurses are scrambling to get him out, to get him back on the bed, to put oxygen in back on his face and help him breathe. And, and it's just awful. It's horrible. Eventually he has a feeding and breathing tube inserted into his lungs to help him. And for three days, this is what Jack looked like. And we would just stand over him and cry and pray and sing. And I just remember like, even like this moment where I'm like rubbing his leg and the nurse comes in and she goes, hey, hey actually you can't even do that to your son because it will like disturb him and he needs to rest. And it's just heart-wrenching and heartbreaking to stand there over my son, Jack, just the pain of not knowing what was going on. We came in on Friday. So he was born on Tuesday. We came in on Friday and by Friday, he's now been alive for four days. I've held him three times for a total of probably 20 minutes in his life, which just, that was awful. And they finally ruled that it was pneumonia, which was a great thing that they finally knew what was going on. They were able to give him antibiotics and we're like, okay, that's great. Like, how long is he gonna be in there? And they're like, we have no idea. You need to prepare for a long time that you're gonna be in the NICU with your son. But they're like, do you wanna hold him? I was like, absolutely. So it's Friday, I'm holding Jack and I'm just, just overwhelmed with emotion. I'm sitting there with Jack in my arms. He's, he now has the breathing tube out. Thankfully, he still had the CPAP in but I'm holding him in my arms as I've now had nights away from him. We've now slept with Natalie's parents, with Isla up in Ames, Jack in the center of Des Moines, just like, this is not the way this is supposed to be. And I'm holding Jack in my arms and I remember this profound thought hit me. As I'm looking at Jack for really what felt like the first time I'm getting to hold him, and this thought occurred to me that the thing that gave me hope in this moment was that 2,000 years ago, there was another dad who looked down from heaven. But instead of tubes wrapped around his son's head, there was thorns. And instead of needles in his hands and in his, instead of needles in my son's hands and feet, there was nails in that dad's son's hands and feet. The thing that gave me hope was knowing that God the Father didn't even spare his own son to give us the hope of restoration and healing from the suffering that we experience here. 
that there was a dad that allowed his son to wear thorns and to experience nails so that we could have healing and restoration. What is God's solution to suffering? It's a person. It's Jesus. God's solution is that he would give his only son to die for us. God's solution for suffering wasn't to be distant from it. It wasn't to be aloof towards it. It wasn't to avoid it. It was to enter into it, to enter into the brokenness that is present in our world, to live in it, to experience it, to experience tremendous suffering for us so that he could bring us true healing from eternal death. That's God's solution, Jesus. And I realize that the question of suffering for some of you is the greatest objection that you have against Christianity. And it's the objection that you have is because you want to know why. Why could God allow suffering? Well, the Bible doesn't necessarily give us an exact answer for why does God allow suffering. But what it gives us instead is what God did about suffering, which is he entered into it, experienced it, and redeemed us from it and provided a way of restoration from suffering. That is God's solution to suffering, Jesus. That the man of suffering whose death would bring life and healing to the world. Guys, it's because of Jesus that we can have confidence in the promises that we're gonna see in Isaiah tonight. The promises of hope for people who are experiencing suffering. So let's look at these five promises starting in Isaiah 25. We're actually going to also see two that are in Isaiah 43. So go to Isaiah 25 first. Let's look at these five promises that God gives us as we experience suffering in this life. So Isaiah 25. The first promise is the promise of joy. What does God promise those who are suffering? First and foremost, he promises joy. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. What hope is there for those who are suffering? Joy. God's promise of joy. He's going to restore a broken world. This passage is about the end. What is going to happen in the end of all things? And God says, I'm preparing a feast, a feast of, of celebration, of joy, of choice meats, of aged wine, of prime cuts, of vintage wine, a feast Right before this, it says you're in, in this barren and dry land. But what is the promise to people who are in a barren and dry land? A feast is coming. And he says in verse 7 that he's going to swallow up or destroy the burial shroud. It's as if this like burial shroud, this like this veil of death is over the entire world, over the entire earth. That just earth is like shrouded by death. And God says, I'm going to swallow that up. That's my promise. That this, this veil of death, this shroud, this burial shroud that is covering the entire world, I'm going to destroy it. And in its place, I'm bringing a feast. 
I'm bringing joy. That is God's promise. Because there's like all these moments in our life where we can kind of like forget that that shroud, that burial shroud exists. Like life can be going good for a while, but then an event like this weekend happens and it's this painful reminder that we're in a broken world that's plagued by sin and death. Things can be going good and then there's just painful reminders in our life. Things like COVID, things like this weekend, things like the the past experiences that you've had with suffering, painful reminders that we are living in a broken world that is shrouded in death. And not not just this big like earth kind of perspective of it, but even on a personal level. So many of you come into Salt Company on Thursday nights with smiles and laughter and happiness, but behind that smile is the veil of death is the past sexual assaults that you've experienced, the past eating disorders that you've walked through, the present relational brokenness that you're trying to figure out, the death of a parent. We live in a world that is shrouded in death, that has this veil of death over it. And what is the promise? God says, I'm gonna swallow that up. The thing in your life that's behind your smile, I'm going to swallow that up. I'm going to destroy it. And in its place, I'm going to bring joy. I was talking to one of the students that was closest to Isaac this week. And as we were talking, we were just reflecting on these moments that we're walking through. When, When we feel the darkness, there can be this like overwhelming sense that's like, man, am I ever going to be able to be happy again? Am I ever going to be able to laugh? Am I always going to be this serious? And God's promise is joy. God's promise is that there is a day coming where there will be joy. And the veil of death, the veil of the burial shroud will be removed. It will be swallowed up. The second promise in Isaiah 25 is the promise of healing. Verse 8. He says, he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. The thing that destroys will be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up forever. The greatest enemy to all of us, the thing that destroys so much It will be destroyed. Death will be gone forever. And God is going to bring healing. (laughs) Look at that promise. He, He wipes away all the tears. Every tear that has been shed in your life, God will wipe away one day in the end. He promises restoration. He promises healing. There is nothing that you could experience in this life that God does not have the power to heal and that God does not have the power to bring restoration in. Every tear wiped away. He promises restoration. Every sad thing made undone. And like Andrew said, in, in, in heaven, the things that hurt so painfully now 
will bring so much joy then as the God of the universe brings healing, as he destroys death, as he wipes away tears. The third promise, it's actually in Isaiah 43. So the next two promises are going to be in Isaiah 43. So flip over a couple chapters. These two verses are some of the most powerful verses in Isaiah. It would be great to memorize. The third promise is the promise of presence. So God promises joy. He promises healing. And thirdly, he promises presence. What is the hope that we have as we face suffering? He will be with us. Look at verse 2 in chapter 43. I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. I've given Egypt as a ransom for you and Cush and Seba in your place. What is God's promise? I will be with you. When you face the waters, when you face the river, when you face the fire, I will be with you. God is present. God is with you. Guys, I had one of the sweetest moments of my life this week. So for Isla's entire life, whenever she's gotten shots, I've always held her. And I haven't made it to every doctor appointment for Isla with her shots. But whenever I'm there, I always hold her. And this week, I had to get my flu shot. <laughs> And Isla, I hate flu shots, and Isla knows that, and she hates flu shots. And I was kind of being, you know, just mad about getting a flu shot. And Isla goes, Daddy, I can hold your hand the whole time. And that's what she did. She just stood there with the pharmacist, and she just held my hand. There is something so powerful about someone you love being present with you. And for Isla, the most reassuring thing when she gets a shot is knowing that her dad is with her. God is with you in the water, in the rivers. They won't overwhelm you right now. If you are suffering, it can feel like it's going to overwhelm you. It can feel like you have no idea what to do next. But God's promise is, I will be with you. There are some wounds in your past that you have never known what to do with. One in four of you ladies has been sexually assaulted. And one in six of you men have been. Those are some deep and painful wounds. And you have wondered, what do I do with this? 50% of marriages end in divorce. You've never known what to do with your parents' divorce. Your closest friend died this weekend. You don't know what to do with that. God says, I will be with you. The water and the river and the fire, they won't overwhelm you. They won't scorch you. I will be with you. And it is such a comforting thing to know that you're in the arms of your father when you're experiencing the pain of the shot. I will be with you. That's his promise, the promise of presence. How can he give us that promise? Because God can promise to be with you because when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, Jesus lost the hand of the father in that moment on the cross so that you could never lose it. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
God forsook Jesus so that you would always have him present with you. That's how you can know he will be with you. Because he let go of his son's hand so he could grab yours. I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, when you cross the rivers, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. The fourth promise is the promise of purpose. Guys, what is water? What is fire? What do they do? Water cleanses. Fire refines. When you put metal in fire, it refines it. It brings out the impurities. Why does God let us face water and fire to cleanse and refine us? Guys, suffering and brokenness was not a part of God's design, but God being the sovereign God of the universe can use suffering and pain in your life for his purpose. He promises that there is a purpose. All throughout scripture, he says, I can work all things for the good of those who love me. Romans 8, 28. God can use your suffering and your pain for good to make you look more like Christ. Andrew read 2 Corinthians which said that the, the, the suffering and affliction that we're facing right now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. God is using your suffering and pain to prepare you for eternity. Now, we might not be able to see it. We might not be able to ever have perspective on how God used our specific suffering and pain in this life to make us look more like Christ, to prepare us for eternity. But we have a Father that we can trust can use our pain and suffering for good and for his purposes. One of the best stories that captured this was a story by Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot's husband was a missionary who was killed while serving, and then she got remarried, and her second husband died of cancer. And this is how she described her experience with suffering. So in an article explaining this, it started by saying this, Elizabeth Elliot used to tell a story that has helped me. When she talked about our human inability as we grapple with our circumstances and the pain we experience during heartbreak or suffering, she described a scene she witnessed when visiting friends at their Welsh sheep farm. Her friends knew sheep are vulnerable to parasites, parasites which harm them unto death if left untreated. So the shepherd once a year took his sheep, gathered them in his arms, and submerged them one by one in a vat of insect-killing antiseptic. He, wise and caring, knew that each terrified sheep could not comprehend the why behind their seeming drowning experience. He knew they didn't even understand if, if he tried to explain so from love, he, the wise shepherd, chose to do for each sheep what he knew he must be, must be done. Elizabeth Elliot says this, one by one, John seized the animals. They would struggle to climb out of the side and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John, the farmer, would catch them spin them around and force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their Lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? Elizabeth, who's 
first husband was speared to death by men who he was trying to reach with the gospel and whose second husband who died of cancer continues by saying this. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? But although I have not found intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation, but a person, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. It's he who was the word before the foundation of the world, suffering as a lamb slain. And he has a lot up his sleeve that you and I haven't the slightest idea about now. He's told us enough so that we know that his suffering is not for nothing. Is it possible that God and his wisdom and sovereignty could have a reason for your suffering and pain that goes beyond what we could comprehend? The fifth promise is the promise of salvation. Look back at Isaiah 25 at verse 9. It says this, On that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord we have waited for. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. God saw us in our brokenness, in our suffering, in our sin, in the sin that has been committed against us, in the sin that we've committed, in the ways that we've experienced the effect of sin. And he said, I love you and I will save you. But the only way that God could save us from the pain of our suffering, from the pain of our sin, from the consequence of our sin, is if he would bring somebody to earth to suffer in our place. And as we go through Isaiah, we're going to begin to hear Isaiah talk about this man who's coming. This one that he refers to as the suffering servant. And there's actually four songs about this suffering servant in Isaiah. And in the fourth one, it says this about him. It says this, it says, He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. What was God's solution to suffering? It was to bring a lamb who would be submerged for us. But not to save that lamb, but to kill that lamb, to slaughter that lamb so that we could have salvation Jesus, the man of suffering, came and he bore our affliction. He was stricken. He bore our sicknesses. He bore our pain so that we could have salvation. 
Guys, the Bible and Christianity is the only thing that gives us ultimate hope to face suffering. It might not be able to answer the big why of your specific suffering, but what it does instead is shows you a God who experienced suffering on your behalf to heal you from it and to save you and to give you hope, to assure you that he is with you when you walk through the darkest valleys, to assure you that there is a day when you will experience joy ultimately, when the shroud of darkness and death will be destroyed forever. Guys, that is the hope we have. That's the hope that we have in the NICU room. That's the hope we have when we get an email on Saturday night. That's the hope we have when we face any uncertainty, any suffering, any pain in this life. That we have a God who became human, experienced sickness, pain, and death, so that we could have ultimate hope and knowing that every tear one day will be wiped from our eyes as we experience the salvation of our God. Lord, we love you. God, we cry out to you. We don't know why the events of this weekend took place. We don't have answers. We have way more questions. God, we don't know why the, the things that we have suffered, the pain that we have experienced in this life has happened to any of us. But God, what we do know for certainty is that you're not a God who is distant from our pain. And you're not a God who doesn't care about our pain, but instead you're a God who experienced our pain. You're a God who experienced death on a cross. You're a God who became acquainted with pain and suffering so that we could receive healing and restoration and the hope of the salvation that we have in Christ. God, be near to us. Be near to Isaac's family. Be near to Isaac's friends. Be near to our campus. Be near to us as we face suffering in the future. God, help us to rest our hope on the unshakable truth that one day death will be swallowed up forever. The burial shroud will be removed. God, that there will be a feast and celebration as we see the lamb who was slaughtered on our behalf so that we could have salvation, that we could have healing. And God, that healing even begins now. God, restore us, be with us as we walk through the water, through the river, through the flames. Amen.